people were losing their homes because one, the property values were dropping, but they really didn't have a backup plan. They didn't have a plan B or C to their financial model. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams, and today I'm with Troy Fullwood. Troy, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Adam. How are you? I'm amazing. And I don't know if we're really going to get through this whole podcast today because I'm impressed by so many different things that you're doing. For the listener, let me share a little bit of what's going on. So Troy Fullwood is from Pinnacle Investments. He's been a note buyer for the last 22 years, and it centers around first lien mortgages on performing and non-performing assets. So NPL, does that mean non-performing lien? Just before we go farther, is NPL non-performing lien? I'm just guessing. Uh, Yeah, non-performing lien or non-performing loan, either one. Okay. All right. Well, I needed to ask that because today you're going to probably use that terminology five or six times, and we're going to need to know exactly what you mean. So one kind of interesting thing, and I want to let him tell you what he's talking about, but he says he's the first person to kind of put this business model on Wall Street with a loan mod, and it kind of helped them do what they're doing. So we'll find out and we'll dive in and understand what he means by that. He is passionate about home preservation. So basically recreating debt or rewriting or restructuring debt for homeowners. This is an area of creative financing where he actually, get this, this is fantastic. He was nominated and a finalist for the private investor of the year of 2018. So were you just in, were you just in, not Austin, not Australia, darn it. Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta. Thanks. I knew it started with an A. All right. Well, you were just in Atlanta, right? Yes. Yeah. I was actually there uh, like five days ago in, uh, for Think Realities event. Absolutely. Awesome. And something that I just learned is not only was he a finalist for a private investor of the year award 2018, he also was nominated for Educator of the Year and Master Investor of the Year. So please welcome Troy Fullwood. Troy, tell us a little bit about the parts of your bio that I've missed. Well, um, so as you mentioned, I've been in the note buying space for 22 years. Uh, we started out working with street level investors, commonly known as fix and flip home buyers, and actually built a model around their fix and flip business that they that I call the 532 or the 541 model, whichever way it works. But it really is about going out, finding five homes, fixing them up, selling three and keeping two, but doing it with owner financing so that you are able to create cash flow long term, residual cash flow, just like the banks do. And that's a model that we started 22 years ago. We helped a number of investors that are in the residential space scale their model and be very successful in that space. Because of that, we have been constantly in the, you know, being introduced to new investors, being introduced to new opportunities. And along the way, back in 2005, we were introduced to a mortgage company out of California who had shut down one of its divisions. Believe it or not, in 05, people were failing in the mortgage space. And that was kind of the peak of the market. One of those times in our history where people were wondering when it was going to crash type thing. A lot of those types of conversations happening. 
And we received a portfolio from them of eight point, about $8.6, $8.4 million. And it was all non-performing first lane, primarily California loans on, um, throughout the state of California. So I called up an old buddy of mine, asked him if he was interested in buying it. And I sold it to him for $2.9 million and essentially made about $100,000 off that deal. So I just flipped an entire portfolio or wholesaled, also wholesaled a bunch of debt to him. Well, that was one of those kind of light bulb moments in the history of our company. And because of that, um, the guy that I flipped it with, a, a partner of mine at the time, he um, was an ex-Wall Street guy. and. He said, hey, let's see if we can build this model. Let's see if we can raise money for this model. Let's see if we can do something with it. So unbeknownst to myself and, and him even, we just decided to throw out some lines, some fishing lines to see who would bite. And lo and behold, we had a international and domestic capital group come to us and say, hey, we like your model, but we want to like, keep the assets. Like, we don't want to wholesale them out. We want to hold on to them. And if you'll build out the model for it and basically act as basically social responsibility. Like we want a social responsibility model. And okay, great. We can do that by home preservation. We can modify these loans. We can keep people in their houses. We can do forgiveness of debt, things like that, because we're on the private sector side versus the institutional, aka banking side. And we built the model out. They threw $30 million cash at us and said, here, prove it now. That was uh, beginning of 07 when they did that. We caught it right at the tipping point in the market space. Uh, we spent $22 million in seven weeks and went on basically a big buying spree, buying product at 10 to 15 cents on the dollar, and then focused on scaling that portfolio product into a performing portfolio. In other words, re rebuilt it, rehabilitated it, reprojected the model. And with that, we proved it out to them. We managed that particular portfolio. We continued to grow the portfolio, managed the portfolio to, to, until 2009 when they decided, because my partner and I were majority interest holders in all of it, they decided they wanted to be the majority. In other words, they wanted all of it because we were operating at a, a very healthy return, over 90% IRR on that portfolio. And um, how, long, how long did that take to get 90% IRR? What was the um, that was about, it took us about 11 months to, to stabilize the portfolio. So you're, was, you're doubling money in a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, no, no. It's, it's a great question. Once we stabilized it, then it was just a matter of managing out the assets and continuing to add to the portfolio as we saw uh, the need to. And uh, at that point in time, they decided, hey, we want to own the whole thing. We love the model. And they in turn bought us out. In 2009, they bought us out, and my partner and I, we, uh, he went off and did some different things. I've gone off and done some different things, but we're still constantly talking to each other and seeing what each other's up to. Matter of fact, he was in Atlanta, Georgia, too, for Think Realty. So we got a chance to sit down and spend some time together. Uh, great times. So catch it up. That's All what we right. did. So fun stuff. Cool. All right. So I've got a few questions on that that I, I definitely want to just touch base on a few things. So when you said you built a model around fix and flips 532, I believe yet that you said that you do five fix and flips, you sell three of them and you keep two. Right. Um, is that a model that you were educating other people on? Is that why 
you were talking earlier about being an educator. Is that what you were teaching them or something else? Um, we primarily, that's not typically what we teach um, students. It's not that we won't teach them. It's not really a model that we've branded or, or anything of that nature. We were teaching um, street level guys that are constantly out there finding and flip, flipping homes. And what they were doing and what we could see early on in the process is they were doing basically what I call, you know, short-term capital paydays. And they weren't really building a residual model for their future. And so I sat down with a couple of them and said, you know, you're, you know, for every five homes you guys are finding, there's always like one or two of them that are like smoking deals. And when I mean smoking deals, and the first gentleman I did it with was out of Waco, Texas, and he was finding these, you know, little 1,200 square foot, three bedroom, two bath type homes that uh, needed TLC. And he was finding them for like five, $6,000, throwing 10, 15 into them and selling them for 40, 50 grand. And um, I said, you know, that one that you've got, that smoking deal that you just bought, why don't you keep that for yourself, put it in your pocket, and you basically have zero cost of capital, zero debt associated with the property, and then sell it with owner financing, but then keep that note in your portfolio so that you can build it up to being, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month in residual income with all the work that you're doing. And you know, not just take that money and put it back in your business. You'll have that model, the uh, revenue producing model over here on the side with the other three to four houses that you're selling will be easily enough money to run your business and then still be able to put these ones off to the side. And so I've shown that to several investors over the years, and they've been able to scale their business. And what, what I learned about the business after being in it as long as I have is that people will typically start off with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about the business, wanting to learn, wanting to get there in the trenches, do deals, make money. And then that enthusiasm kind of becomes a reality. There's a reality aspect that kind of comes with the business. And then that reality aspect comes into, okay, how do I start working smarter? Because I don't see myself fixing and flipping houses for the next 20 years because of all the moving pieces that go with it. And I've helped a lot of people retire just based on that simple model after three to seven years, depending upon the volume of deals that they're doing, um, get to a point where they've got you know, 15, 20,000, $30,000 a month cash flow. And when I say cash flow, I'm talking, you know, the average mortgage, you're, you're looking at about 25 years in, in length. And the beauty of that is that it's, you know, it's compounded interest. You're earning, you know, the eighth wonder of the world type thing. And you've got this cash flow that really is hands off. There's no tenants, no toilets. You don't have to worry about the taxes. You do have to check up to make sure the taxes are paid, but it really is the responsibility of the homeowner. And the only time you're going to, um, I say that loan's going to expire is if they pay it off or they sell the house, which would be a payoff as well. And then you have the occasional time where a homeowner might get a little bit behind on a property. And I'll tell you guys a little secret. If you're in this space and you want to get involved in the note space here at Pinnacle Investments, we've only had uh, nine foreclosures in 22 years in our performing note portfolio. And we've done over 15,000 trades in our performing note portfolio. The reason that is, 
is because we take away, we strip away the fact that these people are just numbers. They're not just the loan number to us. They're actually a person. They're a human being. And we have here, if somebody falls behind on their mortgage, we don't send out the posse to go beat them up in any which way, shape, or form. We simply will reach out to them and say, okay, what's happened? And oftentimes it happens because somebody loses their job. Um, pretty common, unfortunately, but it does happen. And our number one support mechanism to that is like, okay, you lost your job. Not only do you have to, you have the responsibility of paying us, but you also have, they also have the responsibility of making car payments, uh, insurance payments, um, grocery, cell phone bills, electric bills, all of these other things that are part of everybody's life. And we say, okay, let's go find a new job. And we'll help them. We'll even like get their resume, send it over to somebody on Fiverr to tune it up and clean it up and make it look really shiny and then send it back to them. Even if it costs me 30 bucks, 30 bucks is a lot cheaper than a $2,000 foreclosure bill with an attorney. And they'll go find a new job. And I'll take, if it takes them a month or two months, they have to report into us and things like that, letting us know what they're doing. It's not a freebie. It's, we can pause this. We'll take those one or two months and we'll just put them on the back of the loan and keep going. And what's amazing about that is if you approach people that way, they're one, they're incredibly grateful for what you've done, but they become very loyal borrowers. And we never have a repeat performance. We never have any issues with them from that point on because we looked at it from a different um, set of glasses, for lack of a better so, word. I'm getting my feedback again but so the, they're grateful they're loyal but they don't take advantage no we don't find that people really take advantage of the situation we're pretty clear about that that we can't have that and because we're still in the driver's seat with that relationship and we set the boundaries in the relationship like i've got two choices i can help you get a new job and get you back on track which is much more valuable or i can take the house which I'm legally, you know, within my rights to do so. But the domino effect on that is X, Y, Z, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G type thing. And what I found, I would say the majority of the time with people is we're in, a, we're in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yet we, we struggle with financial literacy. And we don't really have a lot of answers to the situations that we get ourselves into. And you saw that in the last downturn in the marketplace. People were losing their homes because, one, property values were dropping, but they really didn't have a backup plan. They didn't have a plan B or C to their financial model. And to be frankly honest with you, we still don't have backup plans here in America. And so we come alongside and say, hey, let us show you just the basics. If you follow these rules here, these basic rules, then you're going to be much further ahead and your family's going to be better off for it. And people are just, we typically find that people are genuinely grateful at the end of the day. I, I can't say 100% of the time. You know, you get that one or two people that, that want to be difficult, but usually they come around to the situation after you put a little pressure on them. You know, you send out a notice of default or something like that, and all of a sudden they kind of snap to the situation. And usually that behavior is a byproduct of their past experiences 
you know, the David and Goliath type model, you know, us versus them type model. And I never want people to look at us from that perspective because, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm, you know, I'm a father. I have kids. I have a, you know, a roof over my head that I have, that I'm responsible for. So I look at it, you know, I, I approach it from that perspective, like, Hey, I've got the same responsibilities and this is what I got to do. And uh, this is what I signed up for. This is what I'm committed to. You know, let me help you out along the way. And most of the time you get that pushback from people that are just genuinely scared because they don't have the answer. So you get into more emotions, people's emotions than you do a financial model at the end of the day. My financial model, I've already done it. So I know, statistically speaking, that if I postpone two payments or I put them on the back of the loan, my yield actually bumps up a little bit at the end of the day. Not by much, not how by- come, How come exactly? Well, when you've got the additional debt, you're carrying that debt. And so you add more debt to the portfolio, then it tends to raise it. So okay, um, not by much. You're talking like, you know, a tenth or one one hundredth of a basis point. Certainly not enough to go out and buy a new car or anything off of it. But uh, it's enough. That it, that it works for me. And even if it went in a downward spiral, like let's say it went negative on it a little bit, I would still do it because that's still cheaper than foreclosing on the property. People don't realize that when you go in and you start foreclosing on houses or any property for that matter, just focus on houses for this, for this particular episode, but you've got lost capital costs, you've got attorney fees, You've got forced placed insurance. You've got taxes. You've got potentially some city liens that may be put on the property. You got property preservation that you have to now deal with. You know, you've got the condition of the property in which you get it back in, which is never ideal at the end of the day. So you've got a lot of extra things that come into play that add up over time. And a lot of times people say, well, it's just a legal cost of you know, $1,500 to foreclose or 2000 whatever the dollar amount is, but they forget all of these other costs that add up along the way, whether it's a 90-day foreclosure process or a 12-month foreclosure process, you're going to have to pay those costs out of your pockets. And so knowing that, you know, it's kind of like knowing you're going to hit a brick wall when you're driving. So you just don't go down that street. You just go down a different road because you know what the outcome is. And that's the beauty of avoiding foreclosure as a whole. So Mike, I've got a question on that. Just yeah. with all those costs that you just mentioned, uh-huh. put them all together, how expensive is foreclosure after that? What would you say the average foreclosure costs you? The nationwide average for institutional foreclosures is like $21,000 per house. Okay. Because I just had a note buyer at one of my events. So I put on some events and that's why I couldn't be in Atlanta with you, but we had a note buyer on stage and, and they had everybody raise their hand and say, and she asked, um, who in the room thinks that foreclosure costs more than $3,000 and everybody raised their hand and she goes, it actually doesn't. It costs 2,500 or something like that. But what you're saying is, is because of holding costs, carrying costs, attorney costs, and, and everything else, um, you know, lo- loss of rent, loss of mortgage, all of that stuff put, put together, and maybe even having to sell the uh, property at a discount after the foreclosure. With everything combined, it, you said um, it averages 22000 
Yeah. So on an institutional level, which is, you know, the B of A's, the Wells Fargo's of the world, it runs about 21, a little bit over $21,000. On the private sector side, meaning my side, your side, you're looking at, it still hovers, we can save a little bit of money in some areas, but you're still over $17,000 under a normal foreclosure timeline. You know, like, so you take Texas, for instance, it's a 60-day foreclosure time. A Texas foreclosure attorney costs and all that are going to be around $2,000. Yes, you can shop it and get it cheaper here, cheaper there type thing. But as an average, you're looking about two grand. And then you've got two months at least of lost capital. And then you've got property preservation, things of that nature that are going to come into play. But you have to keep in mind that foreclosures don't start the day after somebody misses a payment, even, even from an institutional perspective. You know, if you and I quit making our payment today, you know, they're, they're probably not going to serve us with a notice of default until probably 90 to 120 days down the road. Then they're going to start cracking the whip. Over that time period, they're going to have their, first off, we're going to go 30 days before they say anything, because if your payment's due the first and they're not going to notice that it's technically late, late, you know, yes, you'll have a late date in there, say the 15th. But they're not really going to contact you or me until sometime towards the end of that month. And then, you know, then the excuses start, the conversations start back and forth. And long story short, the notice of default is not going to start cracking down until about 120 days out. And then you've got whatever foreclosure time. So they're losing those payments all the time. And if it's on the front side of a mortgage, say less than 10 years, the majority of that payment is interest on that loan. Everybody will realize that come January. Everybody realizes that come January of every year when they get their 1098 A's in the mail and they go, wow, I paid $12,000 worth of mortgage payments and I only got $920 worth of principal reduction. (laughs) And we all sit there and go, wow, what happened here? Because that $11,000 went to the bank for giving you the loan. So you lose all of that during that time period. Then you've got attorney costs for writing the notice of default. Then you've got filing costs. Then you've got your lost capital. You've got late fees. You've got all of these other things that come into play. You've got property taxes. You have to file it. You have to come in with forced placed insurance, which is very expensive from our side. And so over that time period of that foreclosure, those things add up in general. Because even if you get the house back, then now I've got to sell it, but I, I've got to sell it. I'm going to sell it to a group of investors that are fix and flip guys and gals. And what do they want to do? They want to pay 50 cents on the dollar for that house. And that in itself creates its own challenge at the end of the day. Because now if I'm in it at X and they want to buy it for Y, now we're losing even more money. So it's not technically the mechanics of it. It's really all of the accrued cost that goes with it. And that's what people oftentimes forget. Even in the NPL space, the non-performing loan space, when we buy a non-performing loan, let's say it's a let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar loan, hundred thousand dollar unpaid principal balance. And the bank comes to us and says, hey, we'll give this to you at 50 cents on the dollar. Okay. And typically right now they're hovering around 55 to 60%. Of UPB. And let's say the value on the property, the as is value is a hundred grand. Well, 
Now we're looking at something that we're into it for, say, 50 cents for the loan. And if we have to foreclose on it, we're going to add 20% to that as a cost. Meaning, so we round up down. So cost of capital on buying NPLs as a whole, especially on the street level side of it, institutional side, it runs about 4%. On street level side, lines of credit, IRA money, private lender money, things like that, you're running around 10%. So you got 10% cost of capital right out of the bat. Now you've got legal costs, you've got due diligence costs, you've got taxes, you've got um, all of those other costs that come into it, and that's going to eat up another 10%. And that's not even really counting a realtor if you hire a realtor to sell a property in, you know, at the end of the event. In the event that you don't sell it at the courthouse steps, now you've got to hire a realtor to sell it for you if you don't have a database of buyers in that area. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed that the deals can have 17K to 22K. I never knew that. Okay. So the last question I have for this episode is in 2005 and six, you said people were failing yeah. in the mortgage space. Yes. First, what does that exactly mean? What, what does it mean that people are failing in the mortgage space? Great question. So what we were starting to see was you had this increased you know, demand for lending. So you had the stated income, stated asset lending model that was catching fire nationwide. But the, 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 the niche in that was that people were doing it and they were doing what's called first payment defaults. So they were going out, getting a loan, and then never even making the first payment. And mortgage companies that were doing that type of lending, they were responsible for those types of loans. And ultimately, because of that, they were losing their warehouse lines of credit and their partnership agreements and things like that were crumbling because they just weren't profitable. They weren't making money. They were making actually bad loans into the market space. And those bad loans came back and haunted them as a whole. That being said, this, what I meant is that they were failing because they were just doing bad lending habits or they had bad lending habits as a whole and the media wasn't really grabbing onto it and the uh, industry wasn't really grabbing onto it. It was more of kind of a, a silent creeper issue. And so we were seeing it, but it wasn't really being talked about you know, on a broad level. All right. When we, on our next episode, what we're going to start with is where you think we are in the crash. What okay. is your strategy when we get into the crash? Okay. And we're going to talk about a bunch of the exit strategies. We'll go into that $8.6 million deal that you had in California, and we'll okay. try to get through. I have probably 20 questions queued up, so we'll see what we can do on the very next episode. But with that said, we're going to wrap this one up, and we'll see you in two days. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box. 